Hello there, my name is David, and uh, I serve as the lead pastor at Trinity, and uh, thanks for listening in. Um, We are, as you may know, in a series on the Minor Prophets, and yesterday's message on Haggai, we didn't get a recording, some technical issues happened, and so uh, I wanted to not re-preach the message, but I wanted to put something out on the recording for those who are tracking with the series, and uh, just kind of talk through yesterday's message. And so this will be a little different. By the way, if you listen regularly, uh, thanks for listening in. If you listen and uh, you don't have a home church, uh, I would love to invite you to join us at Trinity. We're uh, Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Clay, and we'd love to have you uh, come spend a Sunday morning with us if you live in the area. So let me get into this. Uh, Like I said, this will be a little bit different, but I just wanted to provide this content um, for our message uh, from the book of Haggai. So when the book of Haggai opens in chapter 1, verse 1, there's two surprises in the opening verse. And Haggai 1, 1, uh, I'm reading from the ESV, says this. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the high priest. Uh, I'm skipping they're the sons of two men whose names are hard to pronounce, and I'm going to be reading it over and over. So it's there. If you're following in the text, I see it, but I'm just going to skip it for the sake of not embarrassing myself trying to pronounce their names. Um, so verse uh, 1 of chapter 1, there's two surprises right off the bat. And the first thing is that Darius is the king. And on all the previous minor prophets, um, the king has been a, a Jewish king, uh, either a king in Israel or a king in Judah. And now you get to Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, and the king's name is Darius, which is not a Hebrew name, and uh, you realize something has changed. And Darius is the king of uh, the world power at that time, Persia. So something's changed there. And then you get to the end of the verse, and Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah, not the king of Judah. And so how did we get from not having um, a Jewish king into having a governor instead of a king over Judah? Well, Haggai actually happens uh, about 100 years after the previous book. Last week, uh, Pastor Dan McLaughlin was a guest speaker, and he taught us from Zephaniah. Uh, Well, this is 100 years later. How did we get here? Well, what happened was everything that the prophets, uh, like Zephaniah, had predicted and prophesied, it actually happened. The the nation of Judah, remember Israel had divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, ten tribes, had already been dragged off into exile a long time ago by Assyria. And Judah, the southern kingdom, the two tribes, they were invaded in 586 B.C. by Babylon. They were defeated and they were dragged into exile. And so uh, this is actually the period of time where we see stories in the Old Testament like Daniel in the lion's den and the three Hebrew boys in the fire. Um, so they're, they're, they're under the control and rule of Babylon. They've been dragged away from their homes. And uh, about 47 years into this, Babylon themselves is defeated by a new world power. And this is something that the Jewish prophets also saw coming and, and warned the Babylonian leaders about. And, and in 539 BC, Persia comes and defeats Babylon. And God actually uses this to help his people because the very next year, the king of Persia, the ruler of Persia, his name is Cyrus, he issues a decree that allows the Jews to return to their homeland, to go back to Judah, to Jerusalem, and to rebuild their temple. And nearly 50,000 Jews return. 
Now, when they get back to Jerusalem, everything's been destroyed. The walls are down, the homes are destroyed, and the temple is, in de- is destroyed. And the very first thing that the Jewish people do is they build an altar on the ruins of the temple so that they can worship God, which is a great first step. They remember God. God brought them back. And then they even went in the next year and they laid the foundation of the temple with the intent to build God's house, the temple of God, uh, in Jerusalem so they could have a place to worship. Well, economic opposition comes along the way and external opposition and the temple work stops. And when Haggai speaks, it's 16 to 17 years later. So for 16 to 17 years, the the temple foundation has been sitting there. Now, uh, Haggai is only two chapters long. I would encourage you to take some time and read it. There's a lot in these two chapters, and uh, we can't cover it all in this time. Um, But what I want us to notice is that as we look at this book, there's three things that God wanted to do for his people who had returned from exile. And there's three things that he, he, I think these are three things that he still wants to do for you and me uh, today. It's important for us to remember that, you know, we have things that we want for ourselves Other people have things that they want from us, whether it's family or or our workplace or our friends. We can't lose sight of the fact that there are things that God wants for us. and God has desires for us, and his desires for us to do something for us, in us, and through us is so much more important than any of our own desires. And so I encourage you to lean in to these three things that God wants. The first thing is God wants to change your priorities, your priorities. Right now in uh, Syracuse, the state fair is going on, and uh, everybody goes to the fair with different priorities. Some people go uh, for the rides. My family and I are not big on the rides because anything that you can fold up and uh, put on the back of a truck and drive down the highway, uh, we're not that interested in trusting our lives to. So we don't do a lot of rides. Some people love the animals, which is fun for a while. Um, Then there's the Center of Progress building and the Horticulture building where you can see different uh, vendors and get free samples. There's the New York State Fair is famous for the sand sculpture and the butter sculpture. So there's all sorts of priorities, different reasons why people go to the fair. But I think most of us, if we're honest, we go for the food. And uh, so my, my family has different priorities. My, my wife and, and Caroline, our eight-year-old, love uh, this stand called Mr. Sticky's. And all they sell is cinnamon buns with cream cheese frosting or peanut butter frosting. So we always start our day there. And that's how I convince my wife to go to the fair because she's not a fair fan. Um, Lilia, our oldest, and I, we love meat, and so we go after things like the bacon bomb, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like, or dinosaur barbecue ribs. And then our littlest one, Maddie, who's five, uh, she was really excited because there's a building there called the 4-H building where they have these baby chicks, and you can hold the baby chicks. And so uh, she was super excited about it, but she kept getting confused about what to call them. And so uh, as we were getting closer, she was talking about that she was going to get to hold the baby chicken wings. (laughs) Um, And so people have different priorities. And right off the bat here, God is challenging and wanting to change the priorities of his people. And in in verse 2 of chapter 1, it says, The Lord of of hosts says, These people, speaking of his people, say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They're making excuses about why 16 to 17 years later they haven't built the temple. So then the word of the Lord comes by the hand of Haggai in verse 4. It says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, speaking of his temple, lies in ruins? He's confronting them. He's saying, you guys have homes and you have nice homes. They're paneled homes. Paneling was an expensive thing back then. While this house lies in ruins. 
And he goes on to say, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He's like, pay attention to what's been happening in your life. Verse six, you've sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And the one who earns wages does so just to put them into a bag with holes. So he's saying, look at your life. Things are not working out for you. And here's why. You have the wrong priorities. Now, when Babylon invaded, they destroyed this temple that had been built by King Solomon. And the temple was really significant to the Jewish people. About 440 years before Solomon built the temple, God instructed Moses, uh, after Moses had been used for the exodus to get the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, he, he had given Moses instructions on how to build a tabernacle. And this tabernacle was like a big tent structure that was placed in the middle of the camp of the Israelites. It was a place of worship that contained the Ark of the Covenant and many other significant items. And wherever the Israelites went in the wilderness, they brought the, the, the tabernacle with them. And it, it really was not just representative of the presence of God, but it really was where God came to dwell with his people. And then uh, the second king of Israel, King David, uh, he, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, he laments that he lives in a cedar house, a house made of wood, while the ark of the Lord uh, is housed in a tent. And so he purposes in his heart to build a temple. God says to him, you're not the one to build it, but your son Solomon will. And so we get to 1 Kings chapter 6, and Solomon builds the Lord's house first, and then in 1 Kings chapter 7, he builds his own palace complex. And so you see that David and Solomon, uh, these early leaders, uh, they have the right priorities. And now when Babylon comes in and destroys the temple, this is way more than just destroying a building or a shrine or a memorial. This was a place that God came to meet with his people and his people came to meet with him. And so the destruction of the temple or the absence of the temple was much more than just not having like a church building like, like what we might not have today if we didn't have our church uh, building, but it, it, was, it was almost like being cut off from God, not having a place to meet. And despite that significance, it was not a priority for them to build this temple. Now, God's desire to meet with his people and to dwell with his people, it's one of the central themes of all of scripture. And the temple is a thread that you can find from really Genesis to Revelation. And Many people who study Genesis chapter one and two, the creation account, and they see that God rests on the seventh day. Um, what they say is that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, the readers would have known that a, a, a God only rests in his or her temple. So when God rests in his creation, this, this world, this universe, it, it's a, really a coronation of, uh, um, moment. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a temple um, um, dedication moment. And so God here is sitting in his temple where his presence is going to dwell in all of the earth. And at the end of the scriptures in Revelation 21, 22, when John sees a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth and everything restored, he says, I did not see a temple in the city. There's no actual temple anymore because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So when it's all said and done, God is going to dwell with his people in a city like he, like he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, in between, because of sin, God provides us with ways to encounter his presence. And at this time in the Old Testament, it was specifically through this temple. Now, this is a big deal because when the, um, when the returning ex, uh, when those who are returning from exile did not prioritize the rebuilding of this temple, it spoke to their understanding or their lack of understanding of the role of God in their lives, the need for the centrality of God in their lives, the importance of worshiping God as he desired to be worshiped. 
and where he desired to be worshipped and their dependence on him and their identity as belonging to him and being his people. So they're building their houses, but they're not building his. They're building their kingdom, but they're not building uh, his. They have the wrong priorities. Now, how do you know what your priorities are? Uh, you know, every morning I wake up with the intent to go to the gym, and it doesn't always happen. And every morning I also wake up with the intent to eat breakfast, and surprisingly, it always happens. <laughs> no matter what, I'm going to have breakfast. No matter what happens that morning, I'm going to figure out a way to get something into my mouth to eat. Uh, but when it comes to the gym, it's sort of like, if the star is perfectly aligned, then I will go to the gym. Think about your own life. What are the things that no matter what, you're going to do them? And then what are the things in your life that it's, you have an intent to do them, but it's almost like the stars have to perfectly align? You know, for some people, it's things like serving, uh, serving their neighbors. For some people, uh, it's even just being a part of a church and attending a service. It's like, I'll be there if there's literally nothing else to do and, and, and the stars perfectly align. Well, there's lots of different examples of this, but that's one way we know our priorities. Another way we know our priorities is by answering this question. Where do you most easily and joyfully spend your time, talent, and treasure? Where do you most easily and joyfully spend your time, your talent, or your energy, your resources, and your gifts, and your treasure? Tracking even how you spend your money and Are you using your money to build your kingdom or to build his kingdom? And this isn't just about giving to a local church, but this is about stewarding resources in a way that says, God, this is a gift from you, and I want to use these resources um, specifically to worship you, but also to advance your kingdom more than mine. There's certainly wisdom in using our money wisely and having a retirement account and savings and stuff like that. But at what point are we chasing the same things that everyone else in the suburbs is chasing and finding joy in those things? And at what point are we turning our back on our kingdom to pursue his? Whose kingdom are you building? And God says to them through Haggai, see, nothing is working out. And, and, and you know, remember he said, you, you put clothes on, you're not warm, you eat, you're, you're not full. You put money in a bag, and it's like a bag has a hole in it. And he's saying, this is why. It was just so counterintuitive, because we think if we don't prioritize my needs, I won't be taken care of. But it's the exact opposite. In chasing our own needs, often we lose the things that, we, that are most important. And in prioritizing God's needs, there's so much there for us. Now, uh, Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God, he gives us some good insight on this. He says, you harm yourself when you love anything more than God. How does this work? If you love your children more than you love God, you will essentially need, or you will essentially rest your need for significance and security in them. You look to your children for significance and security. You will need too much. That's the key, the word too much. You will need too much for them to succeed, be happy, and love you. That will either drive them away or crush them under the weight of your expectations because they will be the ultimate source of your happiness and no human being can measure up to that. If instead you love your spouse or romantic partner more than God, then the same things occur. If you love your work and career more than God, you will necessarily also love them more than your family, your community, your own health, and that will lead to physical and relational breakdown. And then he summarizes it by saying this. If you love anything more than God, another way of saying this is if you treasure and trust in anything more than God, if you look to anything more than God for your peace and your joy, your meaning and your purpose, if you do that, You harm the object of your love, you harm yourself, you harm the world around you, and you end up deeply dissatisfied and discontent. I think what he's saying is what Haggai is saying here, that the frustration and fruitlessness in our lives is often rooted in our lack of prioritizing his kingdom. 
My dad's life verse, Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Now, you might read that verse or hear that verse and think, that's awesome. If I go to church, if I pay my tithe, if I'm a good person, then God will give me a big boat and healthy children and a promotion at work. Here's the thing about seeking the kingdom of God. If you do it, it actually has a profound way of redefining the phrase, all these things. And now that all these things that you're looking to be added to you, they start to change. Uh, And if they're not changing in your heart and in your life, then you need to go back and say, am I really seeking his kingdom? Because if you're seeking the kingdom to get what you really want, then you aren't actually seeking his kingdom, are you? You're seeking your kingdom. God wants to change your priorities. Now, two reflection questions before we go to the next point. First, how have your priorities been changed by God in the last year, last two years, last three years? And what about the current order of your priorities does God want to challenge and change? Second thing that we see in Haggai is that not only does God want to change our priorities, God wants to stir your spirit. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 15 says that Zerubbabel and Joshua... Uh, remember, Zerubbabel is the governor and Joshua is the high priest. This is civil and spiritual leaders. With all the remnant of the people, the remnant being those who have returned, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They obeyed this command and the words of Haggai the prophet, and they feared the Lord. So they obey him and they begin to build the temple. Verse 13, then Haggai spoke to the people and he says, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. The Lord is stirring up the spirit of his people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of the host, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. Darius is now uh, the king who has taken over after Cyrus. Now, um, there's something really interesting in this text. There's, a, there's an order that's really important for us to notice. Four things, God speaks his word. Secondly, they obey. Third, he stirs their spirit. Fourth, they get to work. Okay, God's word, their obedience, he stirs their spirit and they get to work. What we see is this, and really, uh, this, this is a, a really cool look at one of the great mysteries um, of our faith, which is the cooperation of divine sovereignty God's choosing and God's work and human response or human responsibility. What part do we play in what God is doing? And the word there, the stir up the spirit, if you look into the Hebrew, this is, a, this is not um, God manufacturing or manipulating or making them do something. God is not turning them into robots and saying, you do. they decided in their hearts that they were going to obey God's word, and he responds by stirring their spirit. And that word stir, it, what the commentators say is that this is a instilling, a gifting, a giving of two things, motivation and morale energy and power and strength. Some people might call this anointing. God does not manipulate Israel's response to the prophetic word, but he does respond to their response to obey with enablement and empowerment to carry out their good intentions. And what I love about here, love about seeing this and and understanding this is that sometimes we have to step out and obey God's word even when we don't feel stirred in our spirits yet. And as we step out and obey, God begins to stir our spirits and he gives us strength and energy and motivation and morale to do these things. And when you have his priorities, you live your life in a way that attracts the power that God has for you, and God will stir your spirit. So how is God stirring your spirit in this season of your life? What dreams is he giving you for what he wants to do in you and for you and through you? What does he have for you? How is he calling you to more? And 
at some point, uh, Christians have to move beyond the feelings of um, desiring to do things that are right because it won't always be there and stepping out into obedience and knowing that God will stir our spirits so that we will then get to work. And there are many of us, I think, who wait too long expecting God to make us feel something. Um, And then there are others of us who feel something, but then we don't take the final step. We don't get to work and do something with it. Now, we need to step out. We need to do something. What evidence is there in your life right now that you're responding to the stirring of God's spirit? Maybe God is stirring you uh, to love someone at work that is difficult to love. Maybe God is stirring you to uh, be a more faithful spouse, to be a more present parent. Maybe God is stirring you to serve at the church in new ways. Maybe God is stirring you to stretch yourselves in how you spend your talent, treasures, and, uh, and, and, and your time. Whatever it is, step out and, and work because God is with you. Now, there is a danger here because some people take this and they, they, make, they take advantage of this idea that God is stirring my spirit to do what they want to do. I, I just want to say that God will never stir your spirit to sin. God will never stir your spirit to, um, to do something that's contrary to his words. God won't stir your spirit to leave your spouse. God won't stir your spirit to leave and, and, and not be a part of a, um, a group of believers. God won't do that. Um, Don't talk about how God is stirring your spirit if he hasn't first changed your priorities. So a great prayer for us to be praying this fall as we head into uh, September is, God, stir my spirit to do a greater work for you and help me to step out in obedience that you would stir my spirit and I can do the work that you have for me. The last thing in um, in this book, the last thought here is that God wants to remind you of his promises. So they start building the temple in Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. Um, they're building the temple, and, and the, the word of the Lord comes by Haggai again. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor, speak to Joshua, the high priest, and to all the people, and say, verse 3 of chapter 2, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And we know from other places in the Old Testament, I believe in Ezra, that when the temple was rebuilt, the second temple was rebuilt, the people who remembered the first temple, Solomon's temple, they, they wept. Their hearts were broken because they thought this isn't as beautiful and wonderful and impressive as it was before. And I think what they might have feared the most is maybe God will not dwell in this place because it's not what it was, in addition, of course, to remembering all that had been lost. But look what God goes on to speak to his people through Haggai, verse 4. He says, Yet be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. Work, for I am with you, according to the covenant. Now he's reminding them, he's bringing them all the way back to the covenant that he had made with the fathers of uh, the forefathers of the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. And now he's referring to the covenant he made with them through Moses. And I love how this uh, verse five ends. He just assures them, he reminds them of the promise and he assures them of his presence. He says, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. I think if we're honest, many times in our faith, we're forgetful and we're fearful. We're forgetful about who God is and what he's done for us. When we focus on our circumstances or we focus on ourselves, we look around and we feel overwhelmed. We look at ourselves and we feel unconvinced and uh, inadequate. And God's saying, no, focus on me. 
Don't focus on what's before you or even who you are, but focus on what I, who I am and what I can do and get to work because I'm with you. And God is assuring the Israelites here, uh, my spirit remains. My presence is with you. I will dwell amongst my people again. And later in Haggai, he talks about how the glory of the latter uh, will be greater than the glory of the former. And there's a lot to that. But what he's saying is the best is yet to come. And my spirit remains with you. And he's reminding them of his promises. And every day we need to remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done. And just like the Israelites at this time in history look back to the Exodus to remind how God got them out of Egyptian slavery, we look back at the cross and we can see how Jesus, the true and better Moses, the true and better prophet, priest, and king, he got us out of our own slavery and our own sin and our own bondage. And he made a way for us to know him and to, and to experience his presence dwelling within us now as we are the temple of God, according to the words of Paul in the New Testament. So every day, one of the most important things we can do is preach the gospel to ourselves and remind us of God's promises. God wants to change your priorities. He wants to stir your spirit, and he wants to remind you of his promises.